Now, I know you're going to give me a really hard time about this, but I, I actually had to, I ran out of fingers counting how many golfs I've bought. Yes, I bought another VW Golf. Okay, so first of all, you do have 10 fingers, so that means it's more than 10 golfs. That's, oh, no, okay, I think it's one hand. Let's go with that. <laughs> okay, although I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if you told me it was 10 golfs, I could see it. <laughs> you know what I'm just the most upset about is that I didn't take a bet on this. So that for the listeners that don't know, Alex is a golf enthusiast, a, you know, a Volkswagen golf enthusiast. I own one, too. We've been golf buddies for a long time. But when the prices on used vehicles got crazy, Alex did the financially smart thing and sold his golf back. I did. I mean, that one was a lease. So in fairness to me, like I got out of the lease basically for free. I had a free car for two, three years, two and a half years or so. That's not bad, but it ate at you, didn't it? You missed it. I really missed it. (laughs) I mean, so I've been test driving vehicles for months now. It started off when I test drove a Toyota Tundra about three or four months ago. Uh, I've driven an F-150, I've driven, uh, I drove a BMW M3, an F-80. That thing was amazing, but it was like $70,000. I also drove a Porsche 911 from 2012, and that was $80,000. As <laughs> getting a bit rich, you know, that's, that's a lot of money for a car. And the Golf just fits in that beautiful 40-ish sweet spot, even you know, in the current market, that's stupid money, I know, but yeah, it just sits in that beautiful price that I'm willing to stomach sweet spot, you know? Were you shocked when you filled it up and how much, ga- how much gas has gotten since the last time you've, uh, how expensive it's gotten since the last time you filled it up? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, what, about a buck a gallon more or so. It, it's more expensive. What I want to know is how tempted were you by the F-150? I mean, I'm just trying to picture you as an F-150 driver. Very, yeah, but... Yeah, I could see it. <laughs> Live feedback in the chat room. Are you seeing this? How what many golfs? <laughs> Someone screenshotted my YouTube face. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, they're getting your YouTube thumbnails ready. <laughs> uh, so let me break it down for the audience, right? I mean, I'm very interested in the F-150 Lightning. I'll just say that up front. But I don't think the availability is going to be there for two, three, four years. The electric charging infrastructure isn't going to be there for a similar length of time at least. So I'll keep that one on the back burner. And for now, I've got my old Chevy pickup, which will do double duty just fine as like a going to the dump with boxes in the backside kind of thing. Like a rock. So this is golf number six. I bought (laughs) the exact, and I do mean identically spec'd, the exact same Golf R that I had a year ago. Amazing. I mean, I know I know you loved it, so it makes it makes some sense. I did love it, yeah. It's a 2019 Mark 7.5 Golf R in lapis blue with the English Town wheels. It's ah. Oh. <laughs> now we're just trying to figure out when somehow because we're Alex and I geographically are very far apart, about four thousand miles right of driving. So <laughs> we want to go driving. We would love to go driving. We do, yeah. So this one only had six thousand, well, five thousand miles on it when I bought it. We'll put a few on there and drive up here what's the big deal no but this is the thing i've got a low mileage example i'd like to keep it that way so i was looking into shipping the car over to you for linux fest northwest next year ah here we go maybe we could do some canyon carving together up in the old uh cascades that'd be pretty great you know i'd always be down there's a few roads i'd take you on so I'll just be, I'll be very brief, but Golf number five was another Golf R. Golf number four was the one that I bought when I emigrated here, which was a red GTI, which is the one that you rode in. Number three was a black GTI that I had in England, which is a Mark 7, 2016. 
I had one of the diesel gate two liter diesel Mark Six Golfs. My very first one though was a 1.6 petrol T Reg from 1997. That was my first Golf, and I loved that thing. It was so great. Well, what you could do is if you could get all of them again, you could just sort of stack them end to end and build a bridge over to the UK for your upcoming meetup in August. <laughs> I could, yeah. Before <laughs> I segue into that, though, I'm just going to say I do want to buy one more. such a good more. segue, though. I such know. A... All right. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll let it go. I want to buy one more Golf, and that is the Mark, <laughs> really? IV, the Mark IV R32 in that beautiful blue color. You know the one. You know the one. It's got the VR6 engine in it, so it sounds like a Wookiee when it goes. I think also my son Dylan, that's the, he wants that to be his first car. He's been looking. He's already looking. Can you believe that? It's a beautiful car. You went down there. You, you claimed your, your prize again. You found your, your one true car love, and then you drove it home. It's kind of a romantic story in a way. I had to go to Tampa to get it. But, uh, you know, Tampa's weird. I'll just say that up front, like... No disrespect to anybody that lives there, but, you know, some of the people that spoke to me were peculiar. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Shall I take you up on your segue offer now? Yeah. Yeah. I still offer it up. UK Meetup is still provisionally happening. However, over the weekend, American Airlines emailed me to say, hey, Mr. Kretschmar, we've changed your flight. Good news. It's earlier. And I'm like, that's not good news because what we planned was to do the meetup on the Saturday and then fly home immediately on the Sunday so that, you know, if we got sick or anything like that, there'd be no problems with re-entry or anything like that. So we don't really want to compromise on that by having the meetup, you know, a week earlier or anything like that, you know, for obvious reasons. We don't want to be stuck in the UK. That would just be horrendous. Who could put up with that? (laughs) so what i'm thinking at this point is we'll probably end up moving it to the friday night so that'll be friday the 5th of august i would implore you to keep an eye on the meetup page meetup.com slash jupiter broadcasting for all the details as they happen in real time you know venue dates all that kind of stuff it's all still up in the air right now so please don't book anything until we say it's confirmed Yeah, so keep an eye out there if you are planning to attend because there will be an update soon as Alex gets everything sorted out. Sorry to hear that, man. It's happening to a lot of people right now with the travel stuff. It's just sort of the situation I think the airlines are in. Yeah, it's it's a problem with Raleigh as an airport, I think, because it it only gets one direct flight a day. And if for any reason that flight, you know, the equipment's not available or crews or I know it's a bit far out to be worrying about that, I would have thought if you're American, but... I guess not. Thank you for the update. Even if it is sort of, it's the good news is the meetup goes on. It's just the date's going to have to adjust and the location will likely have to adjust. All right. Well, let's shift gears. We've talked before about this trend of small command line utilities becoming web apps. And we've covered scrutiny back in, what was it, Alex? 28-ish? Episode 28, yeah. All right. Give us an update, sir. Well, those of you that remember that far back, episode 28, we talked about a hard drive monitoring utility called Scrutiny. The developer Analog J was talking about GitHub sponsors at the time and how if he got enough, he was going to open source it. That happened, and so he open sourced the project. Great. Some time has elapsed since then, and he has just released a new big update, version 0.4. It looks really good, too. You wouldn't think there's so much to get out of a tool like this, but if you have a setup with several disks in it, like we have three servers here at the studio that have a ton of disks in them, this is really handy. 
It is actually one of the things I I love about open source is how people like this developer show up in our Discord and say, "Hey guys, I'm doing a beta test on this you know new feature. Can I have some people to just try this out for me?" And he was actually in our storage channel talking to people in the Discord for the last week or two ahead of this release. So what he's done is he's added InfluxDB support, which has lots of really nice features. The biggest of which is that it now has automatic data downsampling support. So what that means in English is rather than having minute-by-minute updates of your hard drive stats for for 10 years, which am I going to look at minute-by-minute stats of my hard drives five years ago? No, probably not. And so with the data downsampling, he can significantly reduce the size of the databases. uh, And obviously that then increases performance and and everything else that goes with it. So one of my other favorite features in this release is he has made the thresholds that he's using against the Backblaze database, which is what's underpinning his failure thresholds. He's made those thresholds tweakable. So if you see a parameter in there that you think, yeah, that that says failed, but actually I I trust that particular parameter, whatever it might be. You know, CRC cable errors, for example, might trigger a failure in scrutiny that actually I know was just a bad cable that I've swapped out. That's slick. And it's such a great use of that Backblaze data as well to give you a baseline to know, are these numbers, are these normal? (laughs) Or is this a problem? That's pretty great. Will you uh, get that loaded on our servers here? I mean, come on. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I should do. I actually gave him some feedback about the app and how drives were identifying themselves. He was using dev slash SDA as the, the main identifier. And those of you that have worked with Linux servers for any time know that SDA is not a guaranteed, hmm. you know, that drive could tomorrow when it reboots be SDB or SDQ or whatever it might be. And so he's actually enabled a bunch of other features as well around disk identification via label and a bunch of other features too. So it's a great release. Go and check it over at github.com slash analogj slash scrutiny. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. Indeed, at selfhosted.show slash 72. Well, I think this next, I don't. I hate to call it app because it's much more than that, but this next uh, find of yours is going to be one that'll be hit with my kids. It's called Cartridge. It's a self-hosted game library. It's really targeted at folks like me who have a ridiculous amount of classic ROMs because I, I guess I just can't really go beyond the old games. I don't know. I just still love old retro games so much. I was thinking how perfect this would be for anybody that's got a Steam Deck or any kind of gaming handheld. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cause, so essentially what this thing is, it's a self-hosted game library for ROMs. Read-only media, that's what it stands for, right? In, in, in the old days. Read-only, yeah, read-only memory. Oh, yeah, probably that. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's quite basic. It's still in its early stages. It's version 0.1. But on the roadmap, there's some really interesting features which I thought uh, we should mention on the show. So for now, you can scan for ROM files and match it with an IGDB game information database. And you can serve ROM download links alongside those game details. But the things that are coming that actually have me really interested are user creation so you'd be able to manage access to games for your kids and say right you're not allowed to play sonic the hedgehog it's too (laughs) risque or users can request games a bit like you know plex requests or what's it what's it called ombi i think these days but here's the coolest one he's planning to add support to play select roms in the browser using javascript emulators that really would make it perfect on the deck because you got a web browser on the deck It's just a nice way to display your ROMs, too. There's that element of it that I think I like. For me, they're all just in a folder. 
that just sits on my file server. There's nothing really flashy about it. There's no like front end like I have with my movies and my TV shows. You know, there's no way for the kids really to kind of review them and select them. It's sort of like dad sets them up with one and lets them go for a while. So if you're interested in that kind of, uh, you know, retro gaming scene, go and go and check that out. It'll be a, it'll be a link in the show notes. The app is called Cartridge. Now, you were checking out a self-hosted bookmark management tool called Service. Yes, I was. And this is something that I use a lot in my workflow. I, I find a story, I'm reading a story, and I want to capture it while I'm on the go or something like that. And I want to save it in a bookmark manager. I don't use bookmarks a lot in my web browser. But I do use bookmarks a lot with services that will capture the URL and tag them and generate feeds around them. And then on top of that, I even have tooling internally that will send them, depending on how I tag a link, to different channels for different show production purposes. So a self-hosted bookmark manager has been on my radar for a long time. And this is one that I think has a lot of potential. It's super easy to get up and going. They make a Docker image available. They've got an example Docker Compose that you replace a few variables. The application also creates an environment variable folder and a file where you can go in there and set some environment variables if you need to. The idea is it's a self-hosted bookmark manager that lets you organize bookmarks with tags, group them together, and then it also has a really cool command line palette so you can find them, search through them, get at them really quickly. This is it sounds like something you wouldn't need very often, but sometimes we're two weeks down down the road after a story came out. And we remember, wasn't there a story about such and such? It's great for that kind of thing. I mean, I'm curious to know what your workflow actually is because I, I do a bunch of, you know, collation, you know, in the two weeks in between each episode. You know, like on Reddit, for example, I'll upvote something or I'll star it or save it. And then I'll go through and look at the things that I've saved in between, you know, when we're creating a show doc, for example. I would love it if I could have some way of scraping those saved Reddit things into a bookmark manager or some description, but also have a way of saving things outside of Reddit on mobile, because that's where I discover, you know, that's where I doom scroll. Yes, same. Absolutely. I mean, you, it, that is the number one requirement for this workflow for me. So I, I have not gotten that far to test this because as I was registering and setting it up, I started getting server 500 errors. And then it was time to do the show, and I never got it working after that. So I don't know what the mobile workflow is, but what I use today, and this is what this will have to do, is I use Pinboard, and there's apps that that you can install on the share sheets. So you know, I'm looking at a story on Reddit, or I'm in a newsreader, or I'm on a web page. Every application on mobile lets you share the URL, and so you got to have something that works with that. So right now what I do is I share, send it to Pinboard, a lot of times it just auto-generates the title, but sometimes I put a title in and then I give it a tag. So like for this show, it's SSH. You know, For Linux Action News, it's LAN. Pinboard generates RSS feeds for each one of those tags. So then I bring that into my feed reader. So I have meta feeds essentially in my RSS feed reader for each of the shows where I have every link from across every service that I've collected. So when it's time to set, sit down and prepare a show doc, I bring up my feed reader. I go to self-hosted. I've got you know Reddit links. I've got emails because when an email comes in i might throw it in our pay stock and then i'll I'll pinboard that as well so i can grab that and i just have it all right there in one list and so that's what i'd like to replace with this that's the way to do it yeah that sounds like a pretty good workflow pinboard you say now that is a, is a service i don't mind supporting because it's an independent developer you know he built up his own infrastructure and he kind of created it after i think it was like delicious there was a bookmarking service called delicious 
they got a whole bunch of people on board. And then one day they're like, all right, well, so long. Thanks for all the fish. See you later, everybody. And and we were all just left holding the bag being like, well, what do we do now? Uh, <laughs> and so this developer came along and said, I'll build something. I became a user immediately. So I have like some sweetheart price that I pay for it. That sounds pretty nice. Now, a bit of real-time feedback in the Discord. Uh, someone has just linked something called dogsheep.github.io. <laughs> and this thing looks pretty cool. So it's it builds itself as a collection of tools for personal analytics using SQLite and Dataset. And it looks like essentially this thing scrapes all of your cloud services. So Twitter, HealthKit, Google, GitHub, Hacker News, etc., and then puts it all into a central SQLite database. Wow, I've never even heard of it. Dog sheep, huh? Yeah, I thought it was going to be something else for a second, but no. Dog sheep, people. It's it's not rude. All right, we'll put a link to this in the notes. Haven't tried it, but this looks pretty cool. This is like a meta collector. Yeah, I definitely want to get all this on my own storage and that kind of stuff. That's big. Well, if you want somewhere to host it, you know where we could send people, right? Linode.com slash SSH. Go there to get $100 for 60 days on a new account. And you go there to support this here show. Linode's where we build anything that we're going to deploy in the cloud, especially anything that our listeners are going to bang on. Or like if we've got a project or today, we're live streaming on our own self-hosted PeerTube instance. Yeah, that runs on Linode. And actually, the way I do that is pretty crazy, Um, pretty complicated. I'll get into that because we decided to use NixOS on Linode. I'll get into that on another time. But the actual deployment of PeerTube itself that's really just a bunch of Docker Compose stuff. You got you to gotta set a few environment variables for that as well. And then you can get up and going. And there's even simpler deployments on Linode. They've got one-click applications in what they call their marketplace. And that lets you deploy an entire stack of like GitLab or Jitsi if you want to replace Zoom. Tons. I mean, I could go on and list all of them. They have new stuff they're adding all the time. And they're really super great about always adding the latest and greatest distributions on there. So when the new Alma Linux ships... Pretty quickly, they have it on there, right? So if you want to deploy on CentOS, they got it over there. Just about any distro you want to deploy on, even Alpine, they got it over there. And then one of the nice things that we do, like with our PeerTube instance and with our NextCloud instance, is the backing storage is Linode's S3-compatible object storage. And that's freaking great because now we're not sitting there managing storage all the time. We're not sitting there worrying about, like, you know, is our next cloud server going to run out of disk space, which is how I used to do it. Now we use object storage. And that has been such a game changer for us, especially for something like this. Like, I don't know how large this file is going to be. I'll put it on object storage and it just lets us grow as we need. We just maintain that set. It's been dynamite. They've also been rolling out MVME storage upgrades and some of the rigs that we run. So we just got like a big performance boost. And there was just a study. You can find it on Linode's Twitter feed. There was just a study released that compared Linode to all of the other hyperscalers for performance in GPU compute. And Linode blows them all out of the door, blows them all out. And it's a, it's an independent party that did that. And you can find that on their website. There's performance reasons, there's support reasons. Plus there's the opportunity to get a hundred dollars and support the show. So go deploy something for yourself or for your business, get a hundred dollars, kick the tires and try it with a hundred dollars. You can really, really try the feature set. It's like actual real money you can work with to see what the service is like. They wouldn't do that unless they were confident you're going to like it. Linode makes it simple and affordable and accessible to deploy and manage your own infrastructure in the cloud. Go to linode.com slash SSH. Now, I see in the chat that we have one of the core developers of Git T in there today, which is kind of poignant and kind of, uh, 
relevant to the next topic. I finally, finally got around to diagnosing why my CI broke in February today. Oh, great. This should be fascinating. How many months is that? Three? It's been yeah. broken. And I've just... Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, okay, so the CI works if I go in and do the build manually. The thing that was broken was the webhook. It just took me this long to actually be bothered enough to go in and fix it. So it turns out in version 1.16, Git T introduced a new webhook allowed host list variable. I've written a blog post about it. There'll be a link in the show notes. It's a very simple one-line change in the app.ini file. Once I'd figured it out, you know, and actually gone and read the logs that told me exactly what the problem was, it was about 10 minutes to go and fix it. So, Isn't that funny? Something gets broken, takes months to get to it, and then when you finally do get to it, it's not that big of a change. But nice. I'm glad to hear you did find this. I've definitely, I've definitely been there. That may be what ends up happening with my whole Z-Wave conversion with Home Assistant is when I finally do pull the trigger, it's like not that bad. And I end up waiting months before I do it. <laughs> so I just want to say thanks to 6543, who's in the Discord chat, in the live chat as we're live streaming. Thanks for all the great work. Git is a fantastic Git server. For those of you that haven't used it, uh, go ahead and check it out. It's spelled Git, G-I-T-E-A, Git T. It looks very similarly themed to GitHub but it's self-hostable and it's a lot more lightweight than GitLab. I just love it. I've run it for years now. It's a fantastic project. Well, we got a little bit of news in the self-hosted land that's kind of in my neck of the woods. I'm becoming a bigger and bigger Matrix enthusiast. I kind of feel like the rest of the world hasn't caught on to the fact that it's like the new HTTP protocol and the new SMT protocol all in one. But I think the folks over at Rocket Chat have figured it out. Did you see this announcement, Alex? Uh, I'm going to answer your question in a second. I totally thought you were going down the Ron Burgundy route. I'm becoming more and more of kind of a big deal. <laughs> I'm bigger and bigger of a Matrix kind of guy. I'm a okay. big deal on Matrix, Alex. That's where you went. That's where you went with that. So, yeah, there was some really fantastic news out of the Matrix project today. Well, out of Rocket Chat, too, with both of them. So we just wanted to take a moment to welcome Rocket Chat to Matrix. And given the announcement that they are switching to using Matrix for standards-based interoperable federation, this is incredible news. Rocket Chat is one of the leading open-source collaboration platforms with over 12 million users, and shortly they will all have the option to natively interoperate with the wider Matrix network. This is slick. You know, Rocket Chat is, you know, you, know, you could call it a Slack, open-source Slack alternative, you know, just to kind of give you an idea of what it does. And as most of these platforms, they were facing a demand to federate, to connect with other instances. And so I got to imagine what happened is they looked at it, they started doing the math and they said, well, could we just roll this feature out ourselves and interconnect all these different Rocket Chat instances? And instead of another chat project creating another set of standards for another unified federated network, they decided, well, we'll use the matrix protocols. And I think this is fantastic because it's, it's going to use the encryption. It's going to mean that if you have a Matrix-compatible client, and there's more and more of them out there, you can chat now with somebody on Rocket Chat and vice versa. So there's just a lot of benefit, I think, to this. Plus, it's sort of like when you, when you try to roll your own encryption, you generally don't roll the best encryption. It's generally pretty unsafe. I think that's probably pretty true with a lot of communications protocols, too. When you roll your own, it tends not to be great, at least for a while. So if you can instead... Use something that's an open source standard that's been tested for years. It's one less thing you have to worry about. It's one less thing you have to be an expert in. 
Anyone remember XMPP? Wasn't that supposed to be the future? I still love XMPP. I I still do. There is a low-key movement in podcasting, in the podcasting Twitter corner, to use XMPP as a back-end, real-time comments in podcast apps that would sort of use XMPP to move it between the various podcast apps on the background. So it may come back in podcasting. You never know. If you wish hard enough, Alex. Now, have you ever needed to give anybody access to your server that you weren't completely comfortable giving them access to, to run a command or something? Hmm. Just that Alan Jude, you know? <laughs> you put them on one of your boxes, next thing you know, it's a free BSD machine. <laughs> that wasn't quite what I meant. What I meant was something like restarting Plex or doing a wake on land command or something like that. Well, I have a project for you if you ever wanted to solve that problem, and it's called Olive Tin. This project lets you safely give access to commands for less technical people in the web browser. In the web browser? Yeah, right? So what this does is you configure a bunch of commands under the hood that you want it to execute, and it then displays each command as a different button in its web UI. Oh, this is slick. Big buttons, too. So kind of almost like a dashboard, but simplified. Yeah, it'd be very good and useful for you know triggering something... Plex is a good example. I used to have a Telegram bot that I configured for my family when I was having loads of transcoding issues a couple of years ago. They would text the Telegram bot and say, you know, slash Plex, and it would restart the Docker container. But this would be just as good and probably an awful lot easier to set up than a Telegram bot. Yeah, so essentially it it outputs for you a very simple web page with very large buttons, and it looks like you can set like emoticons to add some you know graphics to it. I see on the back end, it's just executing some command line script. I guess it must execute with whatever privileges you're running this application as. So it has to be something that application user has access to. Well, of course, it uh, runs as Docker, or it runs in a Docker container. So, you know, if you want to run commands on the host, you'll have to give it all those various permissions and that kind of thing. I'll be fine. I just run Docker as root, so I'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Don't run Docker as root. I kid. So did you see that Google have done the big 180 on the uh, G Suite Legacy Edition stuff? Yeah, they walked this one back. You know, we we covered this. Uh, We were not very impressed. And it seems like a lot of people were not very impressed. I'm kind of surprised they walked it back, actually. Well, what was supposed to happen was by the end of June, June 27th, the G Suite Free Edition was supposed to be transitioned away to a paid-only version. And it turns out that enough people have either just straight up quit G Suite or have made enough of a stink about it. Or what I suspect has happened is they didn't actually finish the dev work needed underneath to migrate that number of people to the real paid product. That could very well be. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, They've now actually just decided to say, well, actually, those of you that did procrastinate for long enough. Oh, by the way, we're the good guys now. Yeah, isn't this funny how they they just, well, we're not going to do it. They earn points. So it's sort of a win-win situation for them. Plus, you know they can afford it. But I think we should take it as the warning shot that it should be. I was thinking about this earlier today. This is one of the reasons why I want to start using PeerTube for some of our video hosting here. Not only do I like to self-host our infrastructure, but as long as we're using YouTube, I have to maintain a Google account. And I've been thinking, like, how far do I have to go to de-Google? And it's pretty nuts because on the back end of JB, we're using 
the Google Apps for email at least and calendaring. And then for the video publishing, we're using YouTube, which requires a Google account. And so when you think about how deep that rabbit hole is, these kinds of shifts by large tech companies give some of us an opportunity to reevaluate just how tied in we are. And I think a lot of people saw their opportunity to break away. Some people aren't as deep in as I am. And I think they took it as an opportunity to leave. And I think Google saw some bleeding. So I think it was a bit of they weren't ready to migrate everybody. And I think they took a big hit. And I think people canceled. If you look at the business model of our sponsor, Tailscale, you know, they build in to the business model the fact that if you get smart people on board to using your product early, that will have trickle-down effects into the enterprise or trickle-up, I suppose, more accurately. You know, you get DevOps engineers using things at home. You get sysadmins using things at home. They'll go into work and be like, hey, let's just use G Suite. It's it's brilliant. Yeah, it's just so easy. We don't have to worry about Exchange. We don't have to do all this crap. It just works. And I wonder how much attrition they saw of people in that segment who are savvy enough to go to Fastmail or go to any other self-hosted email solution or you know that kind of thing. I wonder how much attrition they saw. I'd love to know the data. Well, obviously, we never will, but... I'm sure they didn't lose too much sleep over it, but I bet it was more than they were comfortable with. I think Fastmail benefited a lot just based on some of the chatter I saw in our community. It seemed like a lot of that landed for Fastmail. I moved to Fastmail. It's been great. But, you know, when you were talking about it, it almost made me feel like there's almost nothing we can do, though, to stop the overall trend because all three of my kids and every one of the, you know, their friends at school have Chromebooks. And they've had them now since like kindergarten. And they've got multiple, they have like a personal Google account and a school Google account, and they know how to use all of the Google tools. And when they need a document editor, the first thing they do is they go to Google Docs now. They, they, don't, they don't launch LibreOffice. He has LibreOffice on his computer. I bet she's never launched it once. Get them early, get them young. Yeah, it's the old Apple technique. It's smart. I mean, if you were an exec, that's exactly what you'd say. It'd be like, this is a 20-year strategy, guys, but this is, this is the way to go. I feel like we're kind of maybe a dying breed. Definitely. Definitely. I think so. I mean, I think it's an interesting thing, like self-hosting in general. I'm well aware that I'm a nerd and I find sitting in front of a computer screen interesting. There are plenty of people in this world. The last thing they want to do is spend their weekends on evenings sat in front of a computer screen. They want to be detailing their car. They want to be doing woodworking. They want to be walking their dog or whatever it is that you do that you find interesting that isn't self-hosting. And to them, the trade-off of giving up a bit of privacy and all of their data to advertisers is, is worth that trade-off. But, you know, those of us who think about these things for good or bad, I would love to de-Googleify, but it's, it's really hard. I wonder if they do value it. I just saw a survey today. I should have grabbed it for the show. I just saw a survey go by today that a ginormous percentage of average consumers that were surveyed, something like 85%, said that the trade-off for their privacy was not worth it. It was a, it was, I was shocked. I didn't grab it for the show, but I think it's, it's a lack of options. I think they care. I think they just, it's in part a lack of time to invest to find the options and the skill set. Yeah, I mean, you and I have spent 15 years plus yeah. building these skills that allow us to run a Linux server. And and it's not a judgment call. No, not at all. It's uh, 
it's it's not easy either like you know if you if you were to genuinely sit down and try and explain i'm thinking back to linux action show with uh noah's switch to linux challenge right now right right uh, if you were to walk into best buy with an ssd and say to someone here go and stick this in your computer first of all how many people would have a computer that could actually take an ssd that isn't soldered onto the motherboard for example these days <laughs> yeah, i know uh, but how many people genuinely would know what that would have the first clue what to do next and it's such a it's such a lot of information that we've learn over like i say at 50 i mean my whole life i built my first computer when i was 13 from parts and then the first linux i ran was i think ubuntu 7 whatever that was i wonder if this conversation is similar to the conversation that radio enthusiasts had as radios became normalized and car enthusiasts had as cars kind of became sealed up and people didn't do their own oil changes and things like that anymore but there's still people that are into that stuff, but it's more of a niche. And so I feel I feel like it's kind of on us to use this stuff to, you know, to, to drive demand and create a market for it. Because otherwise, if we don't do it, like literally no one else will. <laughs> well, I mean, the self-hosted subreddit is one of the busiest that I frequent. So I think self-hosting in general is, is pretty healthy. Yeah. There's lots of people who, you know, don't live in the Western world for example that rely on things like this to get around great firewalls and censorship of various different degrees and stuff like that you know it's not just people like you and me who are choosing to reject big big tech for want of a better phrase some people have to to escape governments and you know whatever it might be so i think there's also the privacy aspect for just a lot of people is becoming more and more even in the west i think it's becoming more and more important to them it's a bigger and bigger motivator i don't think it's the only reason i think there's several there's lots of things that drive people into self-hosting sometimes it's like we've said before you just want to have your own media library and sometimes it's privacy sometimes it's issues with big tech it's not going to die right in fact it'll grow it'll continue to grow the Google trends and stuff continue to grow at a faster rate, I suppose. Yeah, this this gives me a chance to plug one of my favorite websites, killedbygoogle.com. <laughs> yes. But, you know, the self-hosting trend in general, there is, there's lots of trends in the media industry that push people, are pushing people away from legitimate streaming services at present. Five years ago, maybe the, the only option in the, in the room was Netflix, maybe an Amazon Prime video. Yeah. How many are there now? I could not even tell you, man. It's crazy. And, you know, it's like we've just created cable 2.0. So I know a lot of people that are rejecting that and going to, you know, r slash piracy and doing all sorts of nefarious things over there. I feel like we're in a good spot generally as, as, a, as a community. There's so much open source software that just you could only have dreamt of 10 years ago. You know, you could legitimately run your whole business using nothing but open source software without too much compromise, I think. Tailscale.com slash SSH. Go sign up for Tailscale for up to 20 devices for free and support the show. It's a zero config VPN. It installs on any device in minutes. It manages your firewall rules for you. It works from anywhere, even if you have the dreaded double carrier NAT like I do. I switch between networks real time. I'm talking like my neighbor's Wi-Fi, multiple cellular connections, and Starlink. And Tailscale keeps up. I don't know how they do it, man. If you've got like under 10 devices, I bet you could probably get it deployed on all your systems in under five minutes. 
And what I love about Tailscale is it's protected by WireGuard's noise protocol. So they have a backplane that helps you get connected, but you build a mesh network between all your machines. That also keeps their costs down, which lets them keep that free account for up to 20 devices. Tailscale rolls out in minutes. Your devices get connected directly. They'll work from any physical location. I run it on my VMs. I run it on my Raspberry Pis. I run it on my mobile devices. Sometimes when Alex and I want to collaborate for prepping for the show, he'll create a machine on his network, and then he'll just share it to me in Tailscale. And then all of a sudden, now I see one of Alex's machines on my Tailscale list, and you can restrict it to like a specific port. You've got full control over it, too. Super great for that kind of thing. It was pretty cool this week when I flew to Tampa to buy that car. You know, I wake up in Raleigh, and within two hours, I'm in Tampa sat in a car dealership waiting for them to do whatever it is they do in car dealerships. It takes forever, whatever it is. Fire up Tailscale, and it's as if I'm here. It's such a mind-bending operation, and it's a, it's a really cool tool. Yeah, I mean, I'm not new to VPNs, man. I am not new to VPNs. I have been using VPNs since I was on dial-up modems, and I have never had an experience like this. Nothing beats Tailscale. It changes the way you work. It's great for connecting friends and family, too, if you want to provide support for them. It's even better when you're working on the go. Even just a few of your devices. You got a mobile device and a desktop, and you want to connect them directly together over a flat network? Well, Tailscale is going to do it. Go try it out. 20 machines for free. And support the show. Tailscale.com slash SSH. Now, Bronzewing writes in with 9,001 sats talking about 3D printing. Hi, Chris and the Badger. I just wanted to thank you for the content that you guys create. I've listened to every episode, and I just recently jumped into the 3D printing world. Any chance I might hear more of that type of content? I find 3D printing really complements small board computers, and you can make some really neat stuff that runs Linux. Well, you're our 3D printing guy, Alex. Apparently so, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a question that we've tossed around internally this week after getting this bit of feedback. Uh, we might do some special episodes on it, you know, around the holidays and things like that, where we need a week off for travel or whatever it might be. We don't have any plans really to make it a regular feature, mostly because, Chris, uh, you don't really know much about 3D printing. So I suppose if I ever got one, we'd talk about it, right? could almost see a whole different show, really. It could be its own show, really. It, it could, absolutely, yeah. I mean, who knows? We've floated the idea of doing self-hosted weekly for so long now that I, I don't think it's ever going to happen. Who knows? Who knows? Watch this space. We'll see. Yeah, maybe if we get uh, a few more boosts. <laughs> <laughs> but in the off weeks, for example, there could be space for like a show about maker stuff, you know, electronics and 3D printing and that kind of stuff. If you're interested in that kind of thing, give us an idea of how many people that listen to this show would find that interesting because it would be a lot of work to spin up a whole new show, but we're not averse to the idea. I think we'd also be interested if somebody is pretty deep into the stuff and they feel passionate about it and feel like they could present it. Yes. I think we'd be interested to hear from that person as well. Absolutely. You know, maybe we build a show around a host at some point. Turquoise Fox boosted in seven days ago with 2,349 sats. I feel like that's meaningful it's a very specific 2349 and uh, he's just sharing some uk meetup hype which we've got a lot of that what what yeah yeah but as i as i look at the meetup page right now there's 59 people have accepted so i know i'm going to change the date on so that might that might fluctuate a little but uh be interesting to see how many people show up you've been throwing some parties recently alex you've been throwing some parties i know i know i need to slow down and you know, chill. 
Uh, Marcel's calling you out seven days ago. One, two, three, four sets. Alex, weren't you just criticizing bundled containers in a recent episode? This is a reference to last week's or last two weeks episode. So Marcel, my friend, my wonderful pal, there is a difference between a monolithic bastard of a container like GitLab that pulls down six gigabytes of RAM. And I think they've changed it now. I, I don't think that container exists. Someone told me I haven't checked. But anyway, the there's a difference between that kind of bundled container that's running 8,000 services in one container and a self-hosted recipes app running a small web server and the application itself. Two services versus 8 million. Uh, for me, I, I think it's a pretty obvious... It's a, not a hard law. It's just one that has to be interpreted depending on the application and how many things it's bundling. Our last official message, our boost, our last boostagram, I guess you could call it, came in from the Golden Dragon seven days ago, like he always does, with a row of ducks. And he says, pew, pew, thanks for the show. I've been listening since episode one. I've started learning self-hosting. I've gotten brave enough to try Jellyfin. And when it works, it works very well. The learning experience has been great, and I learn more and more each episode. I will have to give the recipe apps a try as well. One question I had was, are there any Wi-Fi enabled e-ink displays that you know of? Great question. I could, I would love to have a wall-mounted e-ink display for Home Assistant. Yes, but they're expensive. So there's a bunch of e-ink screens by a company called Waveshare, and they will plug directly into a Raspberry Pi. But to give you an idea, a 7.5-inch e-ink display on its own without the Raspberry Pi, which is unobtainium right now, of course is $70. And for that, you could buy a tablet. I mean, if, it, if it's plugged into a Raspberry Pi, it has to be powered anyway. It's not going to be on a battery, which is where e-ink would win. Now, you can get e-ink displays that will connect into like ESP devices, like an ESP32 or something like that, and refresh those, because obviously an e-ink display only uses power when it updates. When it's sat there, you know, displaying whatever it's displaying, it's not using any energy whatsoever. So for that use case, e-ink is uniquely brilliant. But for almost every use case I can think of where I'd want a permanent screen, there would be power available. Even if there isn't power all the time, an Android tablet has a battery, and it's probably going to have like five, six hours of battery life. So... I know this because there are there are times when we're out boondocking and I unplug the tablets to let the to let the batteries drain down too but when I plug them in I'm I'm monitoring how much power draw they are and it's totally it's totally nothing right it's just it's just nothing so yeah you could get even lower with an ink display I would love to see that I don't know let us know what you would use that display for golden dragon cuz uh I I could picture it but maybe only for like status update type things weather reports things that don't change very often I'm still using that Kindle Fire that I flash with Lineage OS as a baby monitor at the moment. We run the Wise cams as our baby monitor because that means we can have, you know, as many baby monitors screens as we want without paying the stupid extortionate prices of those things. So I put Lineage on a, an old, really old Kindle uh, Fire tablet a long time ago, and it's just it just works. It's just reliable. It just sits on my wife's nightstand and just does its thing. She can bring it around with her. But the other nice thing about having WiseBridge is I've noticed too, like she could bring it up on her phone if she just, if that's what she has with her as well. So that's, that's very handy. I'm interested to know what your impression is of the performance because the performance with the stock Amazon Android image on there 
is dog doo doo. It is bad. It is bad, bad. I think we paid twenty five or twenty eight pounds for the ad supported version like seven years ago. I always pick them up on like some ridiculous sale. That's the best part. <laughs> it's only worth it if you can put lineage on it because then it it strips out all the cruft and yeah. all the crap, and performance <laughs> goes from being complete dog turd to being not great. I'm sure Amazon loves when you remove the ads from their ad-supported version. <laughs> uh, so the, the newer ones, you can't really do that very easily. So be careful if you are buying a Kindle Fire with that in mind. Careful which one you buy. Go and look at the Lineage OS wikis and all that kind of stuff, and they'll give you some good info about what's supported. In the before times, I would have considered like a little CM4-powered display system, right? CM4... Because where I have one of my screens mounted, it's on a bathroom medicine cabinet that we don't use. And it doesn't have a mirror. It just is a wood medicine cabinet. So the tablet's mounted to that. But it would be not really much of a problem to drill a hole through that medicine cabinet. I could have like a Raspberry Pi mounted at the back of the medicine cabinet and then just a display on the front. And it'd be a lot cleaner. I think a lot more responsive. But these days, compute modules are like, you know, as valuable as plywood and, and wood and gold. It's getting ridiculous. And I just got another. I, find, I, 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 you know, I picked one up recently and I just received it. And now it's like, what do I do with this thing? Like, they're so rare and precious. Whatever job I give this, it's going to be, it's got to be like important now. Like I've, I've totally gone from having a drawer full of raspberry pies to now everyone I get is like precious and limited and can't be wasted. <laughs> it's getting bad, Alex. Maybe when that clears up, maybe then I'll build one. Uh, we got a couple thank you boosts. J24 boosted in saying he loves the value for value model and also that he loves using Keybase for personal repositories. And then we also got one anonymous thank you boost with no message, just a thank you. I'd love to take a moment to say thank you to our site reliability engineers over at selfhosted.show slash SRE. You subscribers over there make the show possible. Indeed. And they let us be picky about who we talk to. This is something I'm mentioning just for a short period of time, but we get all kinds of weird sponsor requests. Mm. And one that happens on the Coder Show, it happens on this show occasionally, happens on Coder Radio all the time. People email in that want to pay us to interview them and pretend like they're not paying us to interview them on the show, Yeah, which is easy money for a podcaster. That's easy money. I could do that all day long. (laughs) So the members, they let us not even have to consider that kind of crap. We get to stay focused on super serving our audience. That's what the members do. They give us that runway. So as a thank you, we've created an ad-free version of the show. And soon, not ready yet because we're building the back-end infrastructure to make it possible, but soon we're also going to create a live feed for our members. So the live shows that we're now doing, which is now a regular thing for the self-hosted program, soon our members will have an option between two feeds, the ad-free feed that we've always had and the new live feed. So that way they can just subscribe to that and they get even more show. And as a thank you to the ad-free version, they also get a post-show, which is uh, only available for our members. Again, selfhosted.show slash SRE. Now, we're doing this show live at the moment every two weeks, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Where can people go to find that when we're live, Chris? You say at the moment, but as far as I know, I think we're doing it going forward, right? Jupiter.tube, and we do it on Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Pacific. And we'll keep it posted over. We'll have it archived over there, too. That's the idea, is that if you'd like to catch a live version and you'd like to see the video version, we will have it archived there. Our focus is going to remain the audio feed that gets released, but 
we felt like this was a nice way to kind of interact with our community on a more ongoing basis. Gives everybody an opportunity to show up, say hi, hang out. Now, most of you already know this, but selfhosted.show slash contact is the place to go to get in touch with us. You can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger, and I'm in the Discord at AlexKTZ. That's right. That Discord is at selfhosted.show slash Discord. I'm on Twitter at ChrisLAS. The network has a Telegram group that you can join, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Telegram. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 72.